Hello, and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 5. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today, we'll break down and look at the story elements in Season 5, Episode 7, Fool for Love, where Buffy goes to Spike for answers about how he killed two slayers. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. As to Fool for Love, we'll focus on the story within a story that Spike tells Buffy, how Buffy's main plot and Spike's subplot about dealing with his feelings for her connect and using action and setting to keep dialogue-heavy scenes moving. No spoilers, except at the end when I'll talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the hellmouth. Fool for Love aired the first time on November 14, 2000. It was directed by Nick Mark and written by Doug Petrie. And during this episode, I'll share some highlights from the DVD commentary that Doug Petrie did, which talks about some story arcs and season arcs as well as reasons behind certain scenes in this episode. We start with an opening conflict that relates directly both to the main plot of Buffy seeking answers about how to stay alive longer and Spike's story in an indirect way. Buffy's fighting a vampire in the graveyard. She's quipping about his bad smell and personal grooming as they fight. But then she does this flying somersault toward him, raises her stake, and the vampire grabs Buffy's arm, twists it, and plunges her own stake into her stomach. At point 43 seconds in, we cut to credits. So a very quick, short, cold open. When we return, Buffy, shocked and in pain, still manages to punch out the vampire and knock him to the ground. She yanks out the stake and runs, but the vampire blocks her path and says, You going? But you were having such fun a minute ago. He throws her against a tomb wall, then he grabs the stake that she dropped and approaches But Riley, from nowhere, tackles the vampire, fights it, and finally tays it. It runs off as Buffy sinks to the ground against the tomb wall and passes out. The next scene starts in Buffy's bedroom. Riley finishes bandaging Buffy's midsection, and he wants her to see the doctor. This was a major stab wound. But she doesn't want to worry her mom. And she reminds him that accelerated healing comes with the Slayer package. Riley asks about the bad guy or guys, how many were there, and Buffy says, just one vampire. Also, to Riley's next question, it was not a super vamp. She says, just, quote, the regular kind. He just beat me. And this is a little bit early, but in the next second, we see the story spark or inciting incident that sets the main plot rolling. In novels and most movies and past Buffy episodes, that has come about 10% through the story. 
Last time, though, in family, it came much later, and in this episode, it's a little early, but I think for different reasons. Here we have got two very strong story arcs that take place in the present day and a story within a story that is told in flashback, so it throws off where the plot points typically happen. Riley now says, has that ever happened before? And Buffy says, I'm in the best physical shape of my life. If you're asking how it happened, and she cuts off as Dawn bursts into the room. I think that moment when Buffy implies that she doesn't understand what happened, that sets off the main plot. Dawn warns them both that Joyce is coming and Joyce steps in a second later to talk about the grocery lists. She sees the alcohol and cotton balls and asks if they're disinfecting something. Dawn jumps in and covers. She claims it was a nail polish snafu, which a weary Joyce accepts. Buffy kind of gives Dawn kudos for the save, then shows her her bandaged midsection and clues Dawn in. She also says she'll need help with the chores for a bit so Joyce doesn't figure it out, which seems like a pretty bad reward to Dawn for helping save the day, but she agrees. Riley says he'll take tonight's patrol. At 8 minutes 47 seconds in, Buffy asks Riley to do her a favor and take the gang along, and he reluctantly agrees. Dawn says, when do I get to patrol? And Buffy answers, not until you are never. So we'll also see a lot of movement in Riley's season arc in this episode. If you remember last time in Family, he got angry and hurt when Buffy clearly wasn't telling him something major going on because she couldn't explain why she was acting so strangely about Dawn, couldn't or wouldn't. In the next scene, Riley at night moves ahead of Willow, Xander, and Anya in the graveyard, They are loudly crunching chips and debating what Riley's hand signals to them mean. Willow thinks it means choo-choo, and Anya thinks maybe he means to follow them or to wait there. Throughout this scene, the Scoobies are exaggeratedly cartoony and goofy, um... Unlike when they've patrolled with Buffy, though certainly they never have Slayer stealth, Xander now yells to Riley to ask him what the signal means, and Riley says, it means yell real loud so the vampires who don't know we're coming will have a sporting chance. Riley then suggests they split up and that they lose the chips. Xander admires how Riley is like a big jungle cat and says, how come I'm not like that? He's just so cool, which I think sums up Xander's entire view of Riley now and forever. At 10 minutes 40 seconds in, Buffy and Giles comb through books about Slayers, including Watcher Chronicles. Buffy's hoping for insight into how the other Slayers got killed, but it's all Slayer gets called, blah, blah, great protector, blah, blah, oops, she's dead. Where are the details? Giles hands her a book about a Slayer who forged her own weapons, and Buffy says, gotta love a gal with an anvil. Which I feel like should be on a t-shirt, but pretty much nobody would get that. Buffy's frustrated. There's no information on the last battle. She wants to know why the Slayers lost. She's been training harder than she ever has, and still she slipped up. And she goes on, look, 
I realize that every Slayer comes with an expiration mark on the package, but I want mine to be a long time from now, like a Cheeto. Giles tells Buffy he guesses there are no details about the final battle is because afterwards the Slayers were, and he hesitates, and Buffy says, it's okay to use the D word, Giles. Giles looks down and says, dead, and hence not very forthcoming. He also guesses the Watchers didn't say more because if they're anything like him, they find it too, and Buffy cuts in unseemly. Damn, love you, but you Watchers are such prigs sometimes. Giles says, painful, I was going to say. They exchange a look. Giles adds that there's no one left to tell the tales of the final battles, and then Buffy gives him a look, and he says, what? That was 12 minutes, 47 seconds in, and was the first major plot turn that I think of as the one-quarter twist, because usually it comes about a quarter way through most novels. Here it's a little bit later, but it does come from outside the protagonist, as it should, and it spins the story in a new direction and raises the stakes. Because in the next scene, Buffy is twisting Spike's arm behind his back and shoving him against the wall, and she says, Slayers, you killed two of them. Spike says, I did. And Buffy says, you're going to show me how. So this came from Giles' comments about no one being left. It turns the story because now Buffy will be trying to get information from Spike. And it raises the stakes because Buffy is seeking information from an enemy and exposing her vulnerability, as we'll see in a moment. At a table at the bronze, Buffy and Spike sip beer. Spike comments about the beer, but Buffy's having none of it. She wants to know about one slayer in the Boxer Rebellion and one in New York, and she holds out cash for the information, and Spike tells her if she wants to learn fast, quote, we fought, I won, close quote, and now she can pay up. It's not about the moves, and since he agreed, they'll do it his way, and he wants spicy buffalo wings. He says, order me up a plate, I'm feeling peckish. Buffy sighs, and she turns to call a server, but winces from the pain in her side when she waves her arm. Spike notices she insists she's fine. They trade some more insults, and then she asks if he was born this big a pain in the ass. Spike says, what can I tell you, baby? I've always been bad. At 10 minutes 52 seconds in, we flash back to pre-Spike William with unruly curly blonde hair, wire rim glasses, and a tweed suit, his shirt buttoned as high as it can go. He's struggling to finish a poem as he sits off to the side at a party, and he tells the butler who offers him canapes that he's the very spirit of vexation, and he needs a better word for gleaming. This is the opening conflict for Spike's story within a story, which is the origin story of William becoming Spike. Spike also has an overall subplot that takes place in the present day, which deals with him and his feelings for Buffy. But I will talk about how the plot points in that work later. For now, we're in London 1880, and the opening conflict for the origin story 
is that William can't find the right words for his poem. And we learn this is important because it's about a woman he's in love with, Cecily, who glides down the stairs in a beautiful dress as William watches. He joins a group of other partygoers talking about the police who are unable to solve a rash of murders and disappearances. They speculate, are they animals or thieves? But William prefers not to think of such dark, ugly business. He'd rather create things of beauty. A truly jerky guy steals his pages. He clearly wants to embarrass William, who pleads that the poem is not finished. The guy reads, My heart expands, tis grown a bulgent, inspired by your beauty, effulgent. Everyone laughs at that last word in particular. Another man says it was actually one of William's better poems, and a woman confides that that's why they call him William the Bloody, because of his bloody bad poetry. The jerk now says he'd rather have a railroad spike through his head than listen to another poem. Wonderful callback to when we first learned about Spike from Giles, and Giles told us that he got his name because he drove Spikes through his victims' heads. I'm thinking we know who the first victim will be. William storms off, sees Cecily sitting alone. He thinks she's upset by the others and says they're vulgarians and goes on, they're not like you and I. And Cecily says, you and I. She then asks him to be honest, are the poems about her? William tells her every syllable. She fans herself, she seems distraught, and he tells her he knows it's sudden and goes on, and please, if they're no good, they're only words. He tells her he loves her, she turns away and tells him to stop, and William says, I know I'm a bad poet, but I'm a good man. All I ask is that that you try to see me. But she cuts him off. She does see him, and that's the problem. He's nothing to her. She stands and looks down on him and says, you're beneath me. That is our first major plot turn for the story within a story. It comes from outside Spike from Cecily. It turns the story and it raises the stakes because it sends him out into the street distraught and heartbroken, which puts him in danger. Her line about you're beneath me will come back later and it confused me because Buffy will say it in I did not think that Spike told Buffy this entire story. Maybe he did. I would have liked that to be clearer. I'll get to that more later. At 14 minutes, 51 seconds in, William, clutching his pages, storms through the streets in tears and bumps into Angel, Darla, and Drusilla. Drusilla follows him into this out-of-the-way area. He's tearing up his pages. She's wearing a very fancy gown and coat and says, a man surrounded by fools who cannot see his strength, his vision, his glory. Then she goes into a poetic sort of riff that doesn't make a lot of sense. He tells her to back away as he steps back from her, fearing she's a pickpocket. Drew is kind of amused and says, don't need a purse. Your wealth lies here. And she puts her hand on his heart. And here she touches his hair and forehead in spirit and, and her hand moves lower out of the camera range and she continues 
imagination. You walk in worlds the others can't begin to imagine. And she sways as she speaks. And William says, yes, I mean, no. I mean, uh, mother's expecting me. Drew says, I see what you want. Something glowing and glistening. Something effulgent. And she makes a gesture as if she is pulling the word out of the air and says, do you want it? And William says, oh, yes, God, yes. So this is the midpoint of Spike's origin story. And at the midpoint, we typically see a protagonist make a vow or a commitment, go all in on the quest or suffer a major reversal or both. And here we're going to get a commitment or we just got it with Spike saying yes. And in this next moment, because her face changes to her vampire face and he sees it and he is still ready to go ahead. He doesn't tell her to back off or stop, though he looks a little confused. Drusilla bites him slowly at first, but then it becomes more intense, more sexual, although Spike says, ow, 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 ow. Something of a reversal as well if we look at this in a traditional sense. William is dying. At 17 minutes, 46 seconds in, Riley and the others still in the graveyard see that killer vampire, the one who staked Buffy. They're all quieter this time, but the vampire goes into a tomb with lots of other vampires, and Riley says it's too many to take on. They should come back when it's light. We can kill them just as dead in the morning. At 18 minutes, 54 seconds in, Spike and Buffy play pool. So this is a second example of action, keeping dialogue heavy scenes more interesting. First, we had Spike and Buffy with their beer at the table in the bronze. Not a ton of action, but some. Now we have shifted the setting a bit, so we also use setting. And they play pool as they talk. And sometimes the pool cues are props. And that helps keep the audience engaged with what is really just a conversation. We also saw it, I said that was the second time, this is really the third time, we also saw it in the scene when Riley was bandaging Buffy while talking to her and then quickly moving the alcohol and cotton balls out of sight when Joyce came in. And throughout the scene with Riley and the Scoobies with the chips. Buffy says to Spike, so you trade up on the food chain, then what? Spike chides her for making light of it. It was a profound and powerful experience. He said he had new strength and that the first time he killed, he felt alive. He was through living by society's rules, but to do that, he had to get himself a gang. And we flash back again, and it's it's a little bit of humor because we know as the audience how long Angel has been around, but Spike is calling this his gang. Spike, Angel, Drusilla, and Darla are together and Angel's threatening Spike's life. She's calling him William and is unfazed when Spike says, it's Spike now. Darla's angry with him too because Spike was so open about his kills that they had to flee London. Angel's angry that Spike has, quote, me and my women, close quote, hiding when they could be in luxury accommodation. So clearly Angel feels territorial about Darla and Drusilla. 
And then he goes on, all because William the Bloody likes the attention. In this scene, Spike's hair is no longer curly. It's now straight, but it's still a dark blonde, light brown, not the platinum white he has in the present day. But his manner has changed. It's all swagger and fun. In the first flashback, he had an upper-class British accent. Now he's almost cockney. And Angel at one point asks, and when did you start talking like that? Spike doesn't care what any of them think. He reminds Angel they're vampires. But Angel insists Spike needs to learn some finesse. And Darla says, I think our boys are going to fight. And Drew says, the king of cups expects a picnic. She claps her hand and continues, but this is not his birthday. Darla gives Drew a look and says, good point. Spike asks, does an angel get tired of fights where he knows he can win? And no, angel doesn't. He likes that. A real kill takes pure artistry. They end up fighting more physically. Angel nearly stakes Spike, who only laughs. Angel tells him he can't keep this up forever. Maybe an angry crowd will teach him someday, or the Slayer. And Spike says, what's a Slayer? This is the third major plot turn in Spike's origin story, learning about the Slayer. And he will tell Buffy that after that, he was obsessed. A personal update, as far as my course, How to Plot Your Novel from Idea to First Draft, I'm starting to get some feedback from the beta testers, lots of positive feedback and some wonderful suggestions about how to make it better. So one thing I'll be doing is revising the slides in it so they're a little less detailed. Uh, it's it's really hard for me as a novelist to do the, the kind of bullet points you should actually have on a slide. I want to put everything on there the same way that my emails often turn into short stories and my texts want to turn into emails. So I'm going to do a little revising there. And I'm also going to take some of what I put into the worksheets to help people work on their novel. Some of that didn't make its way into the actual course. I did the worksheets afterwards, and uh, one tester highlighted some things from that that could be useful to have in the audio and video part of the course. So I'm hoping to release it in June at the latest, which is not great timing, at least in most parts of the U.S., the summer is when people want to get outside. They're not necessarily sitting in front of their laptops working on their novels or taking a course about plotting their novel. But hey, there are people who have summers off because they teach or who live somewhere like, as I understand it, in um, Dallas, for instance, where summer is not the outdoor season because it is just too hot. So maybe that will work fine and the course will be available year-round anyway. So when that's ready, I will let you know. You'll probably end up with a few more updates along the way. So we're about 22 minutes in and I paused on my rewatch to Think about, do we see a midpoint commitment or reversal for Buffy in her plot of trying to find out answers about how 
Spike killed the Slayers. And I'm not sure if there is a specific point. There are some reversals here in what Spike tells her and what she realizes about herself, but it is not as defined as we often see. So I'm thinking to the extent that there is a a major reversal, perhaps it is simply her reversal is that at some point Spike became obsessed with Slayers because he'll now tell her that the others were afraid of the Slayers, but he sought them out. And this is probably the greatest danger to Buffy, that being that wants to kill the Slayer. Buffy asks again how Spike killed his first Slayer, and he surprises Buffy and grabs her from behind, and he tells her lesson one is the Slayer must always reach for her weapon, and he vamps out and says he always has his. He also tells her vampires have nothing to fear, nothing but one girl. That's you, honey. Back then, it was her. We cut to Spike fighting a slayer in China. They're inside. Outside, there are torches and fires everywhere and people running. And the subtitle tells us this is the Boxer Rebellion 1900. The slayer fights with a sword. She says nothing as Spike jokes and quips, punching, dancing around her, having a great time. Then he throws himself at her fangs, bared. And it's interesting that we'll see two slayers in this episode fighting Spike plus Buffy. And Buffy is the only slayer in this episode who does any quipping while she's fighting. And I wonder, is that part of what Spike likes so much about Buffy? For a moment, it looks like the Slayer in China is getting the better of Spike. But at 24 minutes, 26 seconds in, he grabs her from behind and bites her neck, draining her blood. And in the commentary, Doug Petrie noted that he's able to do that when she is grabbing for her stake, and then Spike gets the best of her, which fits what Spike just said about Slayer always has to have her weapon. At the last moment before he kills her, the Slayer asks Spike in her own language to tell her mother she's sorry, and Spike says, sorry, love, I don't speak Chinese. He finishes the kill and throws her aside and says, a fella could get used to this. I see that scene with the Slayer as the climax of Spike's origin story. He's faced this challenge, he found the Slayer, and he becomes the vampire that he is now. Now, who is the antagonist for Spike's story within a story? Society, or specifically society's rules, because he wants to fit in society in the beginning. He's following all the rules in a way, but he's still, even at the start, a bit of an outlier. He loves to write his poetry. He falls for Cecily without realizing she just does not think anything of him. And then throughout the episode, he thwarts the rules more and more, including for vampires, the major rule of the Slayer being the one to fear. Now, Spike will tell Buffy another flashback about New York, but that isn't part of the origin story. Now we will finish that. We'll go to the falling action in Spike's story. 
Drusilla joins him. She's admiring that he killed the Slayer. He tells her the Slayer's blood is a powerful aphrodisiac and she sucks the blood off his finger. As they embrace, we cut to the chaos outside. Drusilla and Spike are still all over each other as they run into Darla and Angel. Drusilla brags about Spike killing a Slayer. Angel is very grumpy and grudgingly says, congratulations, I guess that makes you one of us. Spike tells him, don't be glum. He'll have a chance. Spike figures, quote, there's a new chosen one getting all chosen as we speak, end quote. Drusilla says she smells fear, and Angel says the whole place reeks of it. Drew finds it intoxicating, but Angel says, quote, this whole rebellion starting to bore me, end quote. And more in the foreshadowing section on that. The four of them stride forward into the night. Fires blazing at their backs, and Spike leaps into the air in joy. And Doug Petrie called this their album cover. At 27 minutes, 56 seconds in, we're back with Spike and Buffy, and Spike says, it was the best night of my life, and I've had some sweet ones. Buffy's disgusted that Spike got off on killing the Slayer, but he doesn't buy her acting like she doesn't get off on killing vampires. He also points out that Buffy can kill a hundred, a thousand, a thousand thousand vampires and the fiends of hell besides, but all it takes is for just one vampire to have quote, one good day, end quote, which he whispers in her ear as he leans close to her. She shoves him away and he says, hey, you asked and I'm telling. That moment, though, beyond the midpoint feels a little like the midpoint reversal for Buffy because in theory, she knew this, but Spike spells it out. Buffy needs to win every fight to stay alive, but all the vampires and demons in all the world only need to win once and she's dead. Spike now tells her that her problem is she's gotten so good she's starting to think she's immortal. Buffy claims no, she just knows she can handle herself, but he asks how she explains this and pokes her hard in the side where she's wounded. They both cry out in pain. The other bar patrons stare at them. And she asks if that's it, the lesson's over. But Spike tells her not even close, come on, and starts walking off. So that's a nice hook to end that scene so that we know that there's more coming. And we are going to get another change of scene that keeps the conversation interesting. And also, this change of scene tells us something about Spike's subplot of dealing with his feelings for Buffy. Because first she accosts him, then in the next scene, when he has more control because she wants something, he insists that they get some food. He obviously first asks for the beer. They're sitting at a table in the bronze. It's almost like a date. He wants food. Then they're playing pool. Again, very social, something you might do on a date. And they're is a growing feeling of intimacy as they talk, and then next we'll see them in an alley. At 29 minutes, 16 seconds in, Riley stalks through the graveyard at night alone. He goes into that mausoleum where all the vampires are, 
and they are still there. So this was a risky move. He kills the vampire who staked Buffy. And then he drops a grenade and runs out. It explodes behind them, taking out the mausoleum and all the other vampires. We cut to Spike and Buffy in that alley, and he tells her that lesson two is ask the right questions and goes on, the question isn't how'd I win? The question is how'd they lose? He tells her there's a big difference, but Buffy demands to know how he killed the second one. As they talk, he swings at her a few times, she ducks, they circle each other warily, and all of this keeps the tension high through their conversation. Buffy is surprised that swinging at her didn't hurt Spike's head, but he says he knew he couldn't touch her. If there's no intent to hurt, the chip never activates. On the other hand, he vamps out and lunges at her and then screams in pain and says that hurt. So as in Family last time, it is good here too to have a character ask the question the audience must be wondering, which is why can Spike take these swings at Buffy? Why could he grab her earlier without any head pain until he poked her side? Buffy, though, is not amused. She asks asks if this hurts as she punches him hard in the face. Now Spike's on the ground. She gets on top of him with a stake over his heart and demands he tell her about the second Slayer, and he says she's not ready to know. Now we're reaching the last major plot turn in the main plot, and Buffy insists she's ready. Spike says okay and throws her over his head so she somersaults away, and we cut to a Slayer on a subway train and Spike made the same move. So the last major plot turn should grow out of the midpoint and take the story in yet another new direction. And here that new direction is not just that Spike is going to talk about the second Slayer, but he is going to talk about the psychology or the philosophy of why the Slayer lost. And that is the answer Buffy needs but isn't, as Spike said, quite ready to hear yet. This Slayer is black, and she wears a long black leather jacket. Spike now has that platinum white hair that he has in the present day and a scar over his eye and the accent. So we are seeing Spike as he is now, but it's New York 1977. As he fights the Slayer, Spike narrates what's happening, and comments on it. And sometimes we see him fighting in 1977 with a voiceover. Sometimes we cut to him talking to Buffy as they dance around each other mock fighting. He tells Buffy this Slayer had a touch of Buffy's style and says, I could have danced all night with that one. And Buffy says, you think we're dancing? And he says, that's all we've ever done. And though I know it's not what Spike meant, it's interesting that Spike first saw Buffy way back in season two on the dance floor at the Bronze, though she doesn't know that. Spike goes on that the trouble with the dance is Buffy never gets to stop. Every day she wakes up to the same question, is today the day I die? 
He tells her that part of her wants it, not just to stop the uncertainty, but because she's a little bit in love with it. Buffy punches him and we cut to the New York subway slayer getting the better of Spike, knocking him to the floor. She's on top of him, punching him out. But then, as fits with the lesson, the train goes through a tunnel, it's dark, we only see the action in flashes, and when the lights are all on again, Spike is now on top of the Slayer. For the first time, he talks to Buffy from that subway train. He looks up and says, death is your art. You make it with your hands day after day. That final gasp, that look of peace. Part of you is desperate to know what it's like. And this has been cutting between Spike's face, then Buffy's face, then the two of them. And now we get a long shot of the alley. Spike's on the ground. He's kneeling and facing Buffy as she stands. And he says, very philosophical sounding, where does it lead you? Now we're back to Spike in the subway. He's looking up and he says that's the secret, not the punching or the moves. She, meaning the New York Slayer, wanted it. And he says every Slayer has a death wish. He snaps the subway Slayer's neck and finishes even you. Spike in the alley with Buffy stands. He sweeps his long black leather coat behind him as he does, and the scene cuts back to New York. Spike pulls the emergency brake on the subway car, and he starts pulling off the Slayer's long black leather coat as he tells Buffy she's lasted this long because she has ties to the world. Her mom, the brat kid's sister, the Scoobies, but she's just putting off the inevitable sooner or later she'll want it and he says and the second he claps his hands in Buffy's face the second that happens you know I'll be there I'll slip in have myself a real good day here endeth the lesson and at 34 minutes 42 seconds in Spike says I just wonder if you'll like it as much as she did Buffy says get out of my sight Spike now But Spike moves closer. He asks if he scared her. He dares her to hit him. He keeps goading her. And then he leans in to try to kiss her. Buffy's shocked and he says, come on, I can feel it, Slayer. You know you want to dance. And Buffy says, say it's true. Say I do want to. She shoves him so he falls on the ground and is staring up at her. It wouldn't be you, Spike. It would never be you. She throws the cash on top of him and says, you're beneath me. So this is the line, I hate to break out of this amazing scene, but it always felt a little artificial to me if Buffy didn't hear the whole of that story about Cecily, that she would just happen to say the same line. So I'm very curious if any of you felt that way or it's just me. Buffy walks off, Spike's face just crumples a little of the old William there as he grabs at the bills which have scattered around him and half sobs. I feel like the confrontation was a climax in Buffy's plot of finding out about the other slayers and how Spike killed them or how she could avoid that fate. 
She had her last confrontation with the antagonist and resolved it by getting the information she wanted, though she didn't like it. She learned something about Slayers and about herself and about why she lost. Now we go to the falling action section of the main plot, and that's where we tie up loose ends, finish out any subplots, and continue season arcs. Spike gets angry, he grits his teeth and glares after Buffy. Now this is a turn in his subplot of dealing with his feelings for Buffy. As I mentioned earlier, he is the one who insisted on making it like a date. They eat while they talk, they play pool, and he bears his soul to her by trying to kiss her and even by what he says to her right before that. And now Buffy rejects him and not just rejects him, she belittles him. This spins the story for Spike, and in the next scene, he's opening a trunk of weapons. He takes out and loads a rifle as he rants to himself, and Harmony watches. Spike says, beneath me, I'll show her. Six bloody feet beneath me. Hasn't got a death wish. Bitch won't need one. And we cut to a commercial. If you enjoy the Buffy and the Art of Story podcast and want to help ensure it continues, please post a review wherever you listen to podcasts or share it on social media or tell a friend who loves Buffy. Also, you can get bonus Buffy content such as a breakdown of the Angel pilot episode, a comparison of Willow's and Jonathan's arc with magic, and a look at Buffy in contrast to the lone hero narrative by becoming a supporter on Patreon. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Lisa M. Lily, L-I-S-A, M is in Marie, L-I-L-L. Why? We return at 37 minutes in. Harmony tries to talk Spike out of this. She says she's trying to be supportive, quote, so don't drive a stake through my heart like last time, end quote. But Buffy will kick his ass. As soon as he points the gun, he'll be all, ah, and she holds her head and demonstrates. Spike says it'll hurt like hell for two hours, but Buffy will be dead a lot longer than that. Harmony calls after him that he couldn't kill her before he got the chip, so how can he do it now? And we cut to another flashback, this one, with Drusilla in South America in 1998. Through a conflict between them, we'll see how this Spike arc in the series may have started. And we get a little foreshadowing of the last scene of the episode. Drusilla tells Spike he's lying. She can see the Slayer floating all around him laughing and says, why won't you push her away? Spike says he did it for Drew. And now she's carrying on with creatures like this. And we see this demon with antlers who says, obviously, the two of them have a thing going on that he didn't know about. And this is the chaos demon mentioned back in Lover's Walk when Spike said something, I think, to Willow about, have you ever seen a chaos demon? They're all slime and antlers. And Drusilla says, you can't blame the girl, Spike. You're all covered with her. I look at you. All I see is the Slayer. We cut to the Slayer 
Buffy. In her mom's room, Joyce is looking for her conditioner while talking about the grocery list with Buffy, and we gradually realize she is packing a suitcase. Another example of action during a conversation scene. Joyce assures Buffy that she's fine. She wanted to put this off, but, quote, you know the nothing that I've been dealing with the last couple of weeks? It might not be nothing. Joyce will be overnight at the hospital for observation, getting a CAT scan, but it's only one night, and even if there is something, it's very early if they didn't see it before. She, again, assures Buffy she'll be fine. Buffy smiles, though she's clearly holding back tears and says, I know you will. Buffy goes out on the back porch. She's rubbing her arm. She sits and one tear rolls down her cheek. She puts her face in her hands, bends forward, and sobs. At 40 minutes, 49 seconds in, Spike emerges from the bushes. He's holding that rifle. Buffy looks up when she hears him, but she doesn't seem to see the rifle or register what it means. And she just says, what do you want now? And she's angry and her face is tear-stained. Spike stares at her. His jaw is tight. And we can see his face transform his expression as he notices her tears and says, what's wrong? Buffy says she doesn't want to talk about it, but now she's not angry. She's just sad and she looks away. And Spike follows up with, is there something I can do? Buffy's eyes widen. She almost looks at him but doesn't. She's clearly shocked that he asked that, but she doesn't move away when he sits on the steps next to her. He sets the rifle by his side, away from her, and after a second or two, he slowly reaches his hand up, pats her shoulder just for an instant. Buffy doesn't move, but her expression tells us she feels the smallest bit comforted. Spike lets his hand drop to his knee and sits with her, which is one of the hardest things to do with someone in pain. The camera pans back. It's night. We hear the yard sounds, and the two of them sit there, and we go to credits. This is a huge turn for Spike, and the climax of the subplot of the episode of him dealing with his feelings with her. Because now he's not pretending it's a date. He's not trying to kill her. He's not mocking her or fighting her. And he's not trying to get anything from her. He is just being there. It is a moment of genuine connection and friendship. And this is also a game changer for Spike, suggesting his relationship with Buffy will be different going forward. No doubt still complicated, but significantly different. And on the DVD in the commentary, Doug Petrie made the point that the whole episode built this question of between Buffy and Spike, will it be sex or will it be violence? And instead, you get this giant curve at the end, this moment of true connection. That is a great place to start with the other commentary from Doug Petrie on the DVD. Uh, these are highlights. There's much more there. He talked about that opening scene and how it was very typical on purpose 
Buffy's in the graveyard. She's joking. She's quipping. She's fighting this vampire. And we think it's going to be pretty easy. But this time, he stabs her with her own stake. And he said the point was to show or remind the audience that her job is intrinsically dangerous. She risks her life every time. And he noted that the show has gotten had gotten away from that because Buffy is so good at her job. And they wanted to remind the audience that it's not a given that she'll win. It's just the opposite. It's a given that she'll be killed in the line of duty sooner or later. Side fun note, he said the episode was written very quickly, but it's one of his favorites. He said everything just clicked. And it was a special episode because it was a two-parter with Angel. The Angel episode aired right after and continued uh, some of those flashback scenes, uh, a different side of that story. So Doug Petrie was working so much, he was there 24 hours, and he asked Joss where to sleep, and Joss told him to go to the sets, that there's lots of beds there. So Doug Petrie said first he tried Buffy's room, but it felt all weird and stalkery and fanboy in Buffy's bed, so he ended up in Joyce's room. He also said he drank Red Bull for four days straight to get through the writing sessions and that James Marsters was really nice and is the one who gave him the Red Bull. Petrie also said he had a lot of fun with this because it really got into the vampire and slayer lore and what it means to be a slayer. And for those fans who are mythology freaks as he is, he felt great being able to explain so much to them. He also commented that the episode is building in Giles' increasing inability to help Buffy with her journey and how painful that is for Giles because there's only so much he can do. I did not get that from this episode. Uh, it, I mean, it makes sense. Now that I heard that, I can see it, but I saw it more as continuing the relationship and and being this real turning point for the two of them where Giles uh, speaks more about his feelings about Buffy and losing her and they both face more directly the idea that all slayers die in the line of duty. Petrie commented on Riley getting darker and darker through the season and that this episode was a turn for Riley. It separates him from the Scooby gang and how the Scoobies are colorful and fun and eating chips and Riley is all business. So I guess that answers why they, to me, seemed a bit cartoony. It was to draw a striking contrast. He said as far as Spike's poetry that he was sure a bulge in it poem line would get thrown out as just too preposterous, but Joss Whedon decided to keep it. Also that the reason Spike as William is so foppish and kind of a dandy is that it makes it a more fun transformation than if he had always been bad and that we see him piece by piece becoming Spike, including with his appearance. But then we find out underneath he is still the guy who gets his heart broken, which makes him so much more interesting. I had noted the hair changes when I watched. I didn't pick up on the accent myself. Uh, That was something I picked up on after listening to the commentary. And I also didn't notice that the 
Slayer in China, she strikes Spike with his sword on the forehead. So that's, uh, or the eyebrow, and that's where he gets that scar. He also commented relating to the flashbacks that a lot of Spike killing Slayers has to do with the showing up Angel. Spike is afraid he'll never be as fearsome and dangerous as Angelus. He also said it was a challenge with Spike whether they should let him cry when Buffy says that line, you're beneath me. He's such a badass, does that work? But they just let him cry for the briefest moment and then get angry. And Petrie said a lot of fans became much more sympathetic to Spike right around this time. Petrie also enjoyed being able to write about what happened to Spike and Drew after they left Sunnydale at the end of season two. And he noted that this episode is all about people telling other people things they need to hear but don't want to hear, and where people are asking questions where they don't want the answers. Drusilla is telling Spike the truth. Joyce tells Buffy the truth. Spike tells Buffy the truth. And in each instance, the person hearing it really does not want to hear it. He also noted something key about maintaining dramatic tension with that scene between Buffy and Joyce when Joyce tells her about needing to go to the hospital. Petrie said he could play that out because we knew as the audience that Spike was coming to shoot Buffy. So it allows more leeway for the writers to spend time in a relatively quiet scene with Buffy and Joyce because we know that conflict is coming. So that is it other than the foreshadowing section. If you found the story structure that I talk about today helpful and want to try it for your own writing, you're welcome to download story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash story. If you're not staying around for the foreshadowing section, which does include some spoilers for Angel the series, thank you so much for listening and come back in two weeks for Shadow, where Joyce waits for answers and Buffy fights to protect Dawn's identity. And we are back for foreshadowing and spoilers. One more thing from Doug Petrie. He said in the first draft in that Buffy Joyce scene, he had a monologue for Joyce about how great her life had been. And he said it was awful because it was like a giant neon sign saying, I'm going to die. So he cut it out. This scene with Spike at the end, not just a turning point for Spike, but it triggers or pushes Riley further along his trajectory, both believing that he and Buffy can't work out and becoming darker and darker because Spike in the next episode is the one who tells Riley that Joyce is at the hospital. Buffy apparently does not call Riley to tell him either that night or the next morning before going to the hospital with her mom and Dawn. And emotionally, I have to think that may be the last straw for Riley. He doesn't leave until later, but that has got to be a huge thing for him. As far as Angel, Spike, Darla, and Drusilla, as I mentioned, we will see another side of that story on Angel. 
And we'll learn that by the Boxer Rebellion, Angel has gotten his soul back. So it's it's part of a story where Angel is trying to prove that he can still be a vampire. And Darla is not happy with him. She sees that, yes, he does kill people, but not with the reckless abandon he used to. He doesn't take pleasure in it. It's usually people he sees as evil. And that comment that by Drew that she smells fear in the air, that really adds a layer to that because it might be Angel's fear that Darla is figuring him out. And she will later abandon him because of that soul and because he can't overcome it. Also, Spike's poetry and that specific poem returns in the Angel series finale Believing it may be his last day uh, on Earth, Spike goes and reads his poem. I don't remember if he reads. I think he performs the poem. And it's all in how it's said because it works really well when Spike delivers it and the crowd loves it. Back to Buffy, we'll later see Cecily as a vengeance demon friend of Anya's, and there'll be this little slight acknowledgement between Spike and Hallie, which is her name in those episodes. And finally, Spike's long black leather jacket. So we saw in this episode that he took it from the Slayer, the second Slayer he killed. And in season seven, it will be pivotal. Spike will go back to get that jacket so that he can be fearsome again, that he can be a strong opponent. He needs the jacket. And of course, we will learn more backstory about that Slayer and her name and quite a bit more about her. But I noticed that in this episode, she doesn't have a name in the credits. She's listed just as Subway Slayer. So it makes me think that the show did not yet know what it was going to do with her story. That is it for the foreshadowing and for this episode. Thank you again for listening. Come back next time in two weeks for Shadow, where Buffy fights a cobra demon who could reveal the truth about Dawn. If you'd like to connect or comment on the podcast, you can find me on Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly. L-I-S-A-M-I-S-N-Marie-L-I-L-L-Y. You can visit the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page or comment on YouTube, which you can get to through lisalily.com slash YouTube. You can find back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalily.com slash Buffy Story and you can find the book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Buffy Books. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2021. All rights reserved. <laughs>